Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This is the seventh in a series of podcasts promoting the Seminole Wars Foundation's self-paced virtual challenge, the Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King. We launch in just a few days, December 22nd. Registration to join Lammers Legion is now open. Visit www.seminolewars.us for details. Our guest this week is one of the last remaining survivors of, well, not Dade's March of 1835 from Tampa to Ocala, but of the first Lammers Legion in 1963 that sought to retrace Dade's march along a rediscovered Fort King Road. That group succeeded in reaching Bushnell and the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park, where Dade's journey came to an abrupt halt from a seminal ambush. The first Lammers Legion had no need to track it any further because Dade's column was unable to trek it any further. Battle survivors returned to Fort Brooke in Tampa rather than marching north to Fort King, which was a shorter distance but had unknown composition of Seminole who would oppose any passage through. Chris Lammer was 12 years old then. He walked one long, full day with his father, Frank Lammer, family friend William Goza, and several other interested impresarios eager to blaze the pathway anew. 25 years later, his father decided to try it again, this time attired as a blue-sky uniformed 1835's era soldier, one who would march himself, ford rivers himself, and camp overnight himself to gauge a soldier moving through hostile Indian country, as we term it today. But this time, Chris chose to accompany his father, along with a legion of historical hobbyists, for the full five-day walking journey. In this episode, Chris shares insights on the difference between the two marches as he perceived them, whether he thought the marches were a good idea, and what he gleaned from them about the arduous nature of a soldier's life back then and how alien it appears to us today. Chris and I shared narration duties of William Goza's 1963 book on the Fort King Road for an earlier episode of this podcast. Chris Lammer, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Chris Lammer. You hold a special distinction, one of the few people who actually has walked two of the Lammers Legion marches. And after you finish the Seminole Wars Foundation virtual march, you will have participated in three. What can you tell us about the 1963 march when you were about 12 years old? Actually, I only walked one day on that one. It's kind of a vague memory. All I remember was long walk. It was interesting, but I didn't want to go any farther than one day. The first one, I don't remember it as being terrible. It was just, I didn't get the point of it as much as the, as the second one. So I held up okay. I remember being tired and hot during part of it. What do you recall about going out with your dad to explore areas and try to find evidence that there had been a fort or some important Seminole Wars battle there? My vaguest memory is that because the trail went through our property and we drove our jeeps and stuff along that trail, that Dad wanted to try to establish exactly where the trail was. Usually he had more time to mess around with us kids, and he got a little bit busy with that, but he would take us around and uh, we'd 
string and dig stuff up. We found musket balls and buttons occasionally. And just up the river from our house, just 500 feet maybe, they crossed the river. We were always swimming in the river and we'd dive down and find pieces of the bridge. And it was way more interesting. It was pretty busy. We went up to the battlefield park, it seems like pretty often, but that wouldn't take us. Me and my sister would play on the teeter-totters and run around there. And he really got into it. I, I don't know what made him really kick into that. I, I wasn't aware of that. He was just gradually, he was studying up on it and traveling around, always finding information on the phone a whole lot. Frank Lomerl worked as a land developer, but you got to see him fairly often. He was able to mix well his business and his family time. Actually, Dad worked at home, and we were together a lot. This was he was in an official capacity. We did go to work. We cleared land, but it was interesting seeing him in that different role, which I'd never seen him in before. 25 years later, you're older and you're with your dad on the 1988 march from Tampa to the Dade Battlefield. What are your impressions of that? This time, of course, I'd heard a lot about about us. It wasn't really my thing, but he was so into it. Every couple of weeks, we'd go out and dig some more stuff up or find out stuff about us. It was almost like the first time we walked through our property and over the land that, you know, I was older and had knew all the areas where, you know, I was always out in the rivers. So it was a lot more interesting than it was when I was young. And I was in pretty good shape at that time. So I didn't even think of that as a problem. Dad would jog and I would run in quite a bit. So that wasn't a problem. And I knew a few of the people before we went on the trail. So I was way more interested this time than I was the first time. The second one was fine. And I don't even remember having any stress, the walk or anything. Chris, I understand you and your sisters didn't quite understand your dad's interest in Ransom Clark and telling his story. I don't think any of us kids, I have five sisters, and I don't think any of us quite understood it, but he got interested in him, and so much so that I went with him to, I think it was Griggsville or something, New York, and dug up his body to see if he had really, nobody could quite believe that he had, a, I think, a broken collarbone, a broken arm, and a bullet grazed his head and then crawled so far. He found out that was true, and then he, it seemed like he really got into it. Griggsville, New York, is where Ransom Clark is buried, and your father brought a pathologist with him, but he didn't explain why he wanted this examination. Checked out the wounds and everything. He was just admired him, and his dad had told me that he was the only survivor of a ship when he was in the service, I believe. The ship sunk, and he was the only survivor of that. Dad got me interested in him, too. He was pretty unusual. What are your impressions of what it took to be a soldier reenactor doing this march in the old... 1830s wool blue sky uniform gear. My main thought on it was I was running around in shorts basically and nothing else and I just thought how miserable the men must be and I mean I guess they kept them warm but I couldn't have stood doing that. I mean I, would, I can't stand being hot or sort of confined. It seemed like a lot of torture for the people that were acting it out with the uniforms on. At night it would get cold but during the day it was just to me blasting sun. I live in Tennessee now and just can't believe that I lived in Florida for 40 years clearing land. It was just too hot down there for me. So the uniforms, I was always glad I didn't have to wear a suit and tie. It just looked like an awful thing to have to wear. <laughs> uniforms are the same way. I take it you didn't expect to meet people who would dress in era soldier uniforms and actually try to live the life of the soldier. I mean, your dad was one thing, but there were other people out there just like him. 
I'm sort of amazed that uh, people would want to do that, and they were so excited. A lot of them were really, you know, they rolled their own cigarettes, you know, wore old kind of glasses, and were really into the part. I was just in my casual, what I figured a Indian scout would wear roughly. I just wore something that was comfortable. But I never knew that people were so into the history things and the variety of condition the people were in that were going to come out in the woods and walk 60 miles. I was pretty impressed. On this march, for the first time, you met the gregarious Jerry Morris. What did you think of Jerry on this long march? He was one of the interesting ones that uh, took like a day or something to get to know him because he was, I got to know him and he was quite hilarious and really into the whole deal about it. Liked it and stuff, but he was pretty vocal on the some of the problems we had, the, the heat or the cold or the clothes and stuff. He was one of the serious troopers of the group, kind of kept everybody revved up and uh, gung-ho. You said Jerry was hilarious. How so? I remember saying this goddamn hat's about to drive me nuts and my pants itch and, and my boots hurt. <laughs> they look like they really would. He would say that, but he would sort of had a smile. You know, he wasn't really down on it, but he got sweating and red faced, but he was just gung ho. He made me laugh a whole lot chatting along the way. And just funny seeing him obviously not used to marching much less. In, and the boots were like slick bottoms and just hard and all that stuff they had to wear. Especially the hat <laughs> rubbed his head. He was just a real interesting, really into it character and told me a lot of information, stuff they wore and things like that. He informed me a lot about how they were back in the old days that I hadn't really noticed or thought about before. Something to talk about, I guess, sort of to get reactions maybe. The other guys felt mostly the same way, but he just looked like he wasn't used to it. I was pretty amazed that he hung in there. It seemed like it was kind of hard, but he seemed to toughen up pretty quick. He hadn't stayed in shape, but there was a tough inner core there. I don't think he would have quit for anything. This 1988 group brought along historical hobbyists and era soldier reenactors, but it included someone who doubled on the drums. What can you tell us about James Permain? All I remember about the drummer was I was amazed that he carried all that stuff and seemed to be fairly cheerful and stuff. He was up ahead. I don't even remember talking to him. I'm sure I talked to him at some point. That he was just, I was pretty amazed <laughs> that somebody would do that, you know, be capable of it and willing to do it and be fairly cheerful about it. You found James's ability to be dual-hatted, as we say, was quite the accomplishment on the march. Why is that? What we did, and it must have been way worse than then, going over vines and weeds and stuff, and he had that drum hanging out in front of him, and if he stumbled, I never saw him stumble and fall. To me, it would have been a miserable hindrance. He was hanging right in there the whole time. I don't remember him ever complaining or anything, but then he was up front. I'm told some of his drumming was to just keep the group in time, and some of it was to announce your arrival as you entered the town. I presume this was somewhat unusual for the people of the town. People would look and wonder what the heck was going on. Warn people we were coming, I guess. Well, I got so used to him, I was kind of in awe of the guy that had the energy to keep plunking along like that. He did do it in the morning, evening, or I don't remember what cue he used to play him. It seemed like it was always there. I mean, he didn't do it constantly, but it seemed like it was a regular thing we heard. What were the benefits of having a drummer along with you? I think it would greatly help the morale. Like, I like music when I'm working. It was a really good thing. I can't really describe it. 
On a five-day march, I imagine people got on each other's nerves. How did the group get along overall? Everybody got along amazingly well. Quite a camaraderie there with the whole group. You said Jerry Morris at times kept them in line. Keeping people in line tells me that perhaps not everybody was as into playing the role as someone like Jerry Morris. There's a need for discipline. How did discipline hold up during this march? It came and went. Casual, but you could see that, that those guys knew how they were supposed to act when people were around. It seemed like there was people trying to, there wasn't a bunch of rivers, there was some, but in swampy places and stuff, some people that typically stripped down and went through, some found a way to walk across weeds or logs, and some just got their clothes all wet and dried out as they walked. Somebody would take their shoes off whenever across a mushy spot. Some just trudge through and often comical when they slip or be all wet. Or Nobody griped about that or anything. I guess they all knew that there was going to be some of that. Maybe it would soften up their boots for a while while they were wet. Then it would also be awful. Nowadays, I mean, even now, I go out and the snow or wet after an hour or something. It's like, oh, man, I got to get these wet boots off. And, and these are waterproof boots I have. And we just have those leather hard things. And I guess they were just tougher than nails. <laughs> Jerry Morris and you and others sat around the campfire eating. But Jerry Morris didn't think the food seemed authentic for troops on the march. So he went and researched and wrote a pamphlet for the Seminole Wars Foundation, An Army Moves on Its Stomach. What were your impressions of the chow during this march? I do remember sitting around the fire and eating. I don't remember much about what we ate. I was so used to him talking about... Well, it made an impression on Jerry. Seems like maybe there was a really hardcore set of marchers here and then some who were more casual in their approach. The stuff that I didn't pay much attention to, but that were riveted to the talks. And there was sort of two groups, the intently listeners and then the people that were interested in the whole thing, but more like me that just came along for other reasons or that didn't know, like, I don't know what years and what kind of dress and stuff. It's so more of a civilian group that I hung around. And so it was, it was an intense fire group and then a casual around the outside group. Now, although you planned ahead for the route, you weren't always able to make contact with homeowners to get permission to walk on their property. What happened on those times? Most of what I remember about that was we were all, and I guess it was semi-prearranged, but the main group would mill around while dad and a he would go to a house and get permission or who we were and stuff and crossing fences. Sort of made me nervous. You know, when you're out in the woods, people didn't like you climbing on their fences. And so we got permission and I remember that several times, basically just walking along. It seemed like we walked mostly through, I remember a lot of wet, mushy pastures, no big stoppers really. And everybody was fairly friendly. There was a few dogs that slipped out a little bit, a few cows, especially people that didn't know about them that got almost too friendly, but they were just curious. How did the ranks of the Lommers Legion hold up? Did you have a lot of people who fell out? I know some people, I don't know whether uniforms or regulars, but uh, it did seem like it thinned out some, not bad. Though still, it seemed like a pretty good crew there. And some of the people that I thought would quit fade and then vice versa. What stood out for you about these historical hobbyists? Some of the really interesting stuff that I normally wasn't interested in, but they made their own gunpowder and rolled their own cigarettes and had old wire rim glasses and 
I have guns that I like target practice with, and I'm not much of a hunter, but... This helped them in staying in character, but it also provided you some insights from seeing them in character as to what they went through on such a march back in 1835. Have it be raining and have Indians attacking you and having to shove gunpowder, well, you'd have to really be good at what you're doing. And some of those guys really were always amazed that all that would work. I guess they were used to that, but it, it was so slow and hard to imagine how it must have been, how terrifying to have people coming at you and you're trying to stab them with your bayonet into God, your gunpowder went off and everything. Wow. Pouring the powder, pulling the rod out, Packing the wad down in there, I mean, wow. I think I'd have probably gone for the knife also. That would seem like a good idea at times, I'm sure. They must have been good under pressure to they took the time to load that thing up. And, and then, of course, I'm sure they didn't always fire. So you do all that, and then you still have to use your bayonet. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. What were the uniformed reenactors' actions when they got to take a break? Stay in character or not? I remember breaks. I wasn't aware enough to know whether it was on a timed thing or not, but somehow, because I was just back there walking along, all of a sudden it was like, ah, oh, we get to take a break and hopefully have a snack or a, some water or something. It didn't seem real official compared to a lot of things. Short trail, it was lay down. And I don't remember being real tired, but I do remember when we were on break, I would just lay flat occasionally and just go, ah. seemed like a lot of them did that. Left it on and just laid on top of it, leaned up against a tree or something. After five days of marching, I'm sure everyone was glad to finally arrive and have it over with. But it might have been bittersweet as well. It was almost sad. <laughs> but it was, everybody was glad to get there. And the people that met us there, I don't remember family members and stuff of everyone. But it was, it was cool. There's a photo of your dad speaking at a podium. And he looks a little shy. Was he shy or just reserved? I was really shy. He didn't seem shy. He was introverted, would be more. He wasn't real social. They were social. He always had a mission either to do some work, talk about history, something like that. When it came up to speaking and stuff, he was absolutely not shy. He was just, he wasn't really antisocial, but he liked his own space really seriously. He didn't like people to drop in. Jerry Morris may not have been like the John Candy character in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but he was fairly gregarious and jovial. And that might rub somebody the wrong way who likes their own space. This was not the case, however, with Jerry and Frank. Sometimes Dad would be so abrupt with people that were like that that I was not amazed, but I didn't think they would get along so well. Dad didn't like it the boisterous type like that, but Jerry was so sincere about stuff in a neat way. They got along pretty good. It was almost like a team. Anyway, they work well together. I didn't expect that. People who know both your father and you, Chris, say that you look just like him, just a little younger. Of course, your personalities were different. Someone who says you're just like your father does not take that into account. I was passionate about animals and the woods. I mean, we were different, but I understood it. And when he told me about Ransom and sort of as the years go on, would get blips of like, holy, that, I can't believe that happened or, you know, this or that. I did understand it. We understood it logically rationally, reasonably, but you didn't understand it viscerally and maybe emotionally what your father's interest and attachment to the story of Ransom Clark was. Now, I don't really know what sparked it off except that he was so into him. I'm not sure what happens when you die, really, but it, it seemed like I almost thought he was a reincarnated Ransom with some mission to bring Ransom into the light. And it wasn't just Ransom's story. It was the story of the soldiers and the Seminole in the Second Seminole War especially, that your father wanted to raise the awareness and keep it in the public eye. And of course, he hoped that would continue after he passed this world.
it was so important to him to have the feelings of actually both the Indians and the soldiers to have people care enough to carry it on would be he would really like it. How did going on this march, even dressed as say a civilian scout, but going along with living historians who were dressed in the soldier period gear, how did that help you comprehend, if it's at all possible? what it was like to be a soldier on such a march in the 1830s. Hard to imagine what the, if somebody says they went on a march, those Indians, I don't think probably hardly anyone would understand it. But this march was, there wasn't really Indians and probably there was twice as many rattlesnakes and stuff around back then. It would surely make people, if everybody had, <laughs> the world did that, it would be a different world to understand how that was back then. What people did to get what they want or what they thought was right, it, it seems like a completely different world. And trying to convey some of this to your wife is probably a little difficult. But she signed up with you for the virtual march, and she may get a taste of it. To me, it's just really interesting. And my wife, she's known Dad for 25 years or so, and I don't understand it well, but I, she understands stuff like that. So it'll be fun to do that with her, and that'll be sort of like a little journey of our own. I'm looking forward to it. To help people understand how it was, which is that is so so different from anything, it's almost like science fiction story. It just seems like a good thing, I guess. And to be remembered is something. They were out there giving their lives for for at least what they thought was a good cause. And of course, there's both sides of the story, but they gave it hell. <laughs> I mean, all I think I'm pretty tough. I run around the woods and stuff, but those guys were be walking through the woods with snakes, bees alligators and then to be jumped on by a bunch of Indians or to have to watch out for them even though the Indians were certainly had a right to be there but whatever it was it would be terrifying to me I mean wow to go to I have a hard time sleeping I don't think I'd have slept at all except I guess I'd have been so tired I'd pass out just knowing those people out in the woods that want me dead these guys thought they were doing the good thing and getting rid of those old nasty wild Indians and the Indians were thinking what are these aliens coming here and stealing our land and your dad was able to bring this out in his writings. He certainly felt for both sides in a real way. I mean, he was tragic about the army guys and tragic about they were doing to the Indians. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's just the way it is. But this was a deal that was, to me, at least there was absolutely two sides to this story. And the Indians were right. As the years went on when I was little and thought about this, that's why I felt like I was out there. I, I always told my sisters and I think dad, if I'd have been Indian, the white guys wouldn't have won. <laughs> they trusted people too much. Chris Lommer, we're out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and remembrances about that 1988 march of Lommer's Legion from Tampa to Dade Battlefield in Bushnell, Florida. And thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, it was my pleasure. I appreciate you asking me to do that. And I'm oddly excited about the virtual march, which I don't understand. And thank goodness my wife knows about that. And we'll keep you posted on that or whatever we're supposed to do. But yeah, this, the modern technology we have to do, I can't wait to start doing that. And we have wonderful places to walk around here and stuff. Perfect time because we don't need to see any people. We can hike in miles of woods up and down hills and good timing because of the COVID stuff. We, we pretty much, we can make this exciting part of the day and think about dad. I think he would love it. Well, I appreciate you including us in this and I think it's a really neat thing. I'm looking forward to it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. 
visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Summoner Wars podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.